1: And now your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Cromer Mashburn Family Studios at the Maple Knoll Radio Network. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and Real Life Real Estate is your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your real estate investing business and Here on Real Life Real Estate, about once a year, about this time of year, we have a show dedicated to dealing with the unpleasant topic of taxes. But we try to make it more pleasant by uh, giving the opportunity to ask your tax questions of our tax expert, John Heyer. You can give us a call today with your... IRA, tax-related, tax-savings-related, tax-planning-related questions at 772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area, or you can give us a call from any place in the country with absolutely no toll. That was a really long way of saying toll-free. At 877-772-9658, you can also send your questions to us by going to our official website at askvina.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A dot com. Uh, There's a form there that says, ask Vina a question, fill it in, hit the send button, tell us where you're writing from, and it will hopefully get here ASAP. So the earlier you can do that during the show, the better. Um, My guest today is John Heyer, who is an attorney, accountant, and real estate investor from Columbus, Ohio. He has lots and lots of real estate and small business clients so uh, deals with the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about day in and day out and is a frequent guest here on real life real estate john welcome to the show
0: glad to be here
1: well let's see if we're glad you're here because you're going <laughs> to... <laughs> well,
0: I like talking about taxes. I don't know about the rest of you.
1: Well, we like it when you have good news. We like it less well when you have bad news for us. In some years, it seems like there's more good than bad. and some years, it seems like there's more bad than good. So let's find out where we are going into 2015. And I, I want to start with something that's not really... It's not really about taxes. It's more about the IRS. And that is, we're seeing all these news articles that say budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts for the IRS. Can you tell us what that really translates to in real life?
0: It's good and it's bad, so it's mixed. Um, on the downside, they say, they flat out said it was really kind of amusing to read, that their customer service is going to get worse which is rather amazing, whoever put the service, an internal revenue service, was clearly on some spot, something illegal. Um, what they're saying is that a lot of people won't be able to get through, a lot of questions won't be answered, and it's sort of like when you threaten to cut taxes for a local school. The first thing they cut is football to get your attention, same thing. So it's going to be a lot harder to get a hold of them, a lot harder to get service. It also means, on the upside, fewer audits. Now, while we honest people don't have anything to hide, no rational person welcomes an audit and there are going to be less of them because being the government, do they fire a lot of support personnel or do they fire a lot of auditors who make the government money? You guess the answer. They're going to fire a lot of auditors. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is audit rates are down, but so is the ability to talk to them and ask them questions, which means more people have to seek out deserving attorneys and accountants and give them their money.
1: (laughs) So... We may open ourselves up to an audit risk by not knowing the answer to the question that the IRS can't answer for us.
0: <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They, they, uh, you, you have to comply with the law, and they're telling you that they can't really help you do it, so good luck.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know that something that um we've 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 talked about it here on Real Life Real Estate for years. Uh we have had guests come in here from various uh areas of this particular thing, but it seems like it has taken on more of a head of steam in maybe the last eighteen months in the real estate investing community community than I have ever seen before. And still not directly tax related except that it saves you taxes self-directed IRAs and all of their related things. Uh, what, what, I know you've been doing a lot of work with folks on those. What is your feel about what's what's going on there and why there's so much interest in them all of a sudden?
0: I think Romney brought a lot of publicity to it. If we remember from the election campaign, they brought up his IRA, which he was able to put about 20 grand a year in. He grew it, depending on when you took the snapshot, to somewhere between twenty and a hundred million tax free, and people are starting to pay attention. We've seen others doing this on a smaller and much more conservative scale. The bottom line is you can take an IRA or you can take its kissing cousins, four hundred one K's health savings accounts, educational savings accounts, which I really want to spend a little time on that if we if we have it. Mm-hmm. And you can balloon them dramatically both tax free inside. And have the money come out tax free. What a lot of uh, people don't realise, and I think Romney helped us realize is just because you can only put a little bit of money into them doesn't mean that you can't grow them. The speculation is that what Romney did, nobody knows for sure because he didn't disclose it. But the speculation is is that with its it had a respectable balance. I'll bet you he just on contributions put in, you know, four hundred thousand or some dollars like that. But he bought stock. In companies that Bain was going to acquire really cheaply. And then when Bain turned these companies around, of course, the value skyrocketed massively. So maybe he bought it a dollar a share and it went to a hundred a share or a thousand a share. The other speculation is that he had options or preferred stock in Bain itself or whichever name they happen to be operating under. And instead of him acquiring those, he acquired them through his IRA. And again, when they massively ballooned in value, all of that happened inside of a tax-free vehicle, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. which, as it relates to our listeners, of course, means that all of the things that we know how to do in real estate uh, can be done in those sort of tax-free environments legally, or at least it's legal at the moment. I know there's a lot. Yeah, of sp- me, I know there's a lot me, of speculation me... about um, a, per- potentially the Roth IRA and 401k going away at some point in time. So a uh, good thing for people to be thinking about.
0: Yeah, I would say, I mean, let me be the sort of rain on the parade lawyer accountant, which is my job. And most of the things, not all the things you do as investors, but certainly most of the things you do, there is a way to fit it inside of an IRA. And, and my favorite, I like simplicity. Unlike most lawyers. I don't want to see things complicated for the mere sake of complexity. And so the most brilliant strategy, I think, is to leverage a piece of real estate and then pay down the leverage as fast as you can inside of any of those accounts. I know a gentleman here in Ohio has over 50 rentals free and clear in his IRA. And you wonder, how did he do it on five grand a year? He never touched the five grand. That was a reserve. He very carefully structured the debt. And there are a lot of rules that do need to be followed. Lots of I's to dot, lots of T's to cross. And if you mess it up, the IRA dies, goes away. But he did it the right way. He very quickly paid down the debt. While he had debt on the properties, he did pay tax in his IRA. So it's taxable when there's debt. But once you pay it down, it's no longer taxable. And his properties, in his case, were low income, very good deals, about a four-year amortization cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how he managed to get 50 free and clear rentals into his Roth IRA. He's now, let's just say, I won't give his age, he's of an age where the distributions from his Roth are 100% tax-free to him.
1: Mm-hmm. So something to tuck into the back of your brains, listeners. And uh, we certainly have some uh, of, the, of the interviews specifically relating to the various types of IRAs and how you can open them and what you can do in them if you check out our podcast on iTunes. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break, but while we're at it, we're going to Uh, invite listeners to call or email with any questions. The toll-free number here at the studio is 877-772-9658, or you can send an email uh, by going to askvena.com, filling out the response form, and just hitting the send button. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I was just checking out our Real Life Real Estate page on Facebook, and someone made the comment that they could never listen to the show because it was at... It was, uh, they were working uh, during this hour, but they would certainly listen to it if it were on a podcast. For shame, ladies and gentlemen, it is absolutely available via podcast on iTunes. And uh, there's upwards at this point of 200 of the shows uh, there on iTunes. So just go there and look up uh, real life real estate. And if you happen to be listening, to me on the podcast and saying, what's she talking about? Of course, it's a podcast. It's only a podcast. Not so. You can listen and participate on the show live on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time at WMKV 89.3 here in the greater Cincinnati area or WLHS 89.9 in Cincinnati. Or you can listen live streaming anywhere in the world at WMKVFM.org. org. My goal in life is to have every real estate investor in the country aware of all of this great information and these guests, and it's on public radio, so you don't get sold anything, although twice a year at FunDrive, I'm going to say pony up so we can keep the show going, because that's how public radio works, but... Other than that, it is all info all the time, except, you know, me having to explain to you guys that it is both a podcast and a radio show. Uh, we're talking today about taxes, tax update. You know, it's that time of year when I'm starting to talk to real estate investors who say, no, I can't go out this weekend because I'm doing my taxes. And we're talking about some things you need to know about new new case law, new rules, uh, IRAs and, and related entities with John Heyer and John is a uh, tax attorney and accountant who is available to answer your questions at 877-772-9658 or at, uh, if you go to askvina.com, uh, you can ask us a question through that site. Now, uh, John, um, another thing that people are becoming very aware of in regards to IRAs, and then we'll we'll, we'll leave that topic and talk some more about you know, taxes we pay instead of taxes we don't pay, uh, is these alternative accounts, the health savings account, the Coverdell education savings accounts. uh, Are you finding more of your kind of small business slash real estate clients recognizing these, using them, and can you talk briefly about why maybe they ought to if they're not?
0: We are seeing more use of health savings accounts, HSAs. Uh, the beauty of those is you get a deduction for putting money in, and the money comes out tax-free, which unlike a regular Roth IRA, you don't get a deduction for putting money in. So it's really just a double benefit. It, it is only compatible with certain types of insurance. Basically, ask your insurance broker if it's HSA qualified. It's what we used to call in a, in a different day major medical. Right? Usually it's low premium, high deductible. It's actual insurance as opposed to third-party care. You uh, pay for a bunch of your medical care up to a point, and once it becomes very expensive or disastrous, the insurance portion kicks in, and as a result, it tends to be cheaper than third-party coverage, which many confuse with health and health insurance. Um, I love these accounts. You can do the same thing as you can with an IRA account. So if you wanted to fund your out-of-pocket medical expenses for the rest of your life, you put rental properties, to give one example, inside of your HSA and let them grow, and instead of the of pulling the money out to pay for medical care, you leave the money in, allow it to grow, and then have the rentals pay for it. Uh, very good strategy. We are seeing a lot more people use them. Now, the CISAs, the Coverdell Educational Savings Accounts, which, by the way, it's not just for college. Coverdell Educational Savings Account, you can send your children to private school if they're four years old right? It's, it's to K through 12, and it also applies to the university. And also you can use PCs at home. Your, your uh, computers can be paid for as long as a student is using them. The wording was really loose. As long as a student is using them or might use them, the wording was incredibly loose. You can pay through it through the Coverdell. The reason we don't see a lot of Coverdells is the contribution limit is $2,000, and most people shrug their shoulders and say, I can't do anything with 2000 but we know better. I would love to see more of my investors, more of my clients using the Coverdells the same way they use their Roth IRA, and the same way that we're increasingly see them use their health savings accounts.
1: Hmm. Hmm. All right. So let's let's move back to some of the uh, recent updates in in tax laws. Um, reducing self employment tax is an issue that particularly our listeners who do sort of the the quick cash strategies the retailing wholesaling flipping notes things like that uh find themselves dealing with pretty quickly because uh, you know initially they think oh well this isn't something that's subject to self-employment tax i'm i'm buying a house and selling a house and then you tell them well actually no, you're a dealer and uh as a dealer you get to pay self-employment tax on all of that so tell us tell us what some new case law is regarding self-employment tax
0: so this is the not fun part um there was a lot of theory by some very very sharp people based on some vague regulations and the way the code was written that we could use in some contexts llc's and limited partnerships to help reduce self-employment tax the traditional vehicle has been s corporations the problem with s corporations They're not flexible. There are issues when you have partners and you want flexibility. As corporations are really just difficult in that respect. Also, the IRS audits them at a higher rate than the other types of entities. So we like lower audit rates. So there was the speculation that LLCs and LPs would work. The tax court did something that has become that was not usual for the tax court, but has become more usual. They're starting to act like a normal court, which I don't like. It used to be they would read the law and say, no matter what it said, no matter how absurd, no matter who it hurt, that's the law, and we're going to apply it. So if it hurt the IRS, too bad. If it hurt the taxpayer, too bad. Go talk to the legislature. We don't make law. There has been a recent trend, at least in my subjective opinion, of they'll tell the taxpayer, oh, well, this is how it's written. Too bad if it hurts you. But if it hurts the IRS, they say this is not what Congress intended. So even though the statute says one thing, we're going to interpret it differently because we don't like the result. And I think that's what they did to LLCs and LPs. They basically said you can't use those to reduce self-employment tax. You're going to need to use S corporations for all their flaws. So we're no longer recommending, although there are people out there who haven't gotten the memo, some really sharp people, in fact, um, but we're no longer recommending LLCs or limited partnerships to reduce self-employment tax, which, as you said, would apply to people who buy and sell a lot of something or the people who who, uh, provide services, for example, realtors. Mm -hmm. Uh, The S-Corp is the only way to go. Because of the high audit rates, we do recommend that you get a salary study done. The way an S-Corporation works is the money that passes through, you don't pay self-employment tax on, but you have to pay a quote-unquote reasonable salary. And that's a very gray area. It's kind of like, what's that property worth? We can argue about that. There's a range. So we're starting to recommend that people get a salary study done. The good news is it's still a viable technique and the savings are very often large enough to justify paying for a salary study every few years to have documentation if you get audited. So I don't like that they knock down LPs and LLCs for self-employment tax, but let's remember the, the glass is half full portion. You can still use S corporations if you're careful and do it the right way. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a pretty big change. I mean, for years, everyone's been saying, get an LLC, get an LLC.
0: And that's, remember, only for self-employment tax type of activities. So Mm -hmm. rental income, for example, is exempt from self-employment tax. So you would still use an LLC to hold your rentals. But on flippy type activities, wholesaling, any sort of services, be it my services or a realtor, you're starting to really look at an S-corporation. And there's always the cost-benefit decision. You have to look at how much it saves you and how much it costs you, including the hassle, and decide if it's worth it. The bigger the dollars, obviously, the more likely it'll make sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some listener questions here that uh, we probably ought to deal with before they pile up too much. Uh, And again, listeners, if you have a question for John about something we're talking about today, tax issues, IRA issues, that sort of thing... Uh, You can either go to askvina.com and send it through our response form there, or you can call us toll free at 877-772-9658. Here is a question from Lisa, who's a little, little more of a small business type person than a real estate type person, but it's a great question. She says, I'm helping a friend open a new gym this month and won't be able to listen to the show. That's okay. You can listen to the podcast. Uh, She says, I'm getting killed on my taxes with self-employment income and alimony. I'm able to reduce self-employment income and the 15% Social Security tax with Schedule C deductions. I'm probably close to maxing out what I can do with that because I still need some of that income. My question is, I'm sure John can't answer questions uh, Particular to the specific situation, but what's my strategy when I start to look for places to reduce my taxes? I don't even know where to start.
0: That's a very broad question. Um, We get it a lot. We do a lot of reviews where we'll go through somebody's. What we do is we compare their books, assuming they have books and they're good books. And if they don't, the first step is they need to get organized. If they're not organized, we can't really tell what they're spending on or what they're doing. Um. We look at their books. We compare it to their returns to see what the accountant did with it. And and fundamentally, we try to figure out, did they take all the deductions they could? And then we look at some more details. Did they treat the income in the most favorable manner possible? In the real estate context, for example, there are some deals. The first few deals you do really aren't flip deals. They're more capital gains. Did the accountant put them in the right place on the return to get the most favorable treatment? Once we do that, and that's a pretty, you know, I'm oversimplifying it because there are hundreds of deductions we could be looking at. We also want to look and see, are they actually backing up the deductions? Because the way the IRS knocks people down, it's not that you're entitled to the deduction that they hit on. They hit on that you didn't prove that you're entitled to the deduction. So there is a certain amount of admin and paperwork, and I know entrepreneurs hate it. Trust me, I get it. You have to make a decision if you want the deduction you're willing to do that or you're willing to not do that and not take the deduction and pay more in taxes and that can be a rational decision if your time is worth more than the tax savings then maybe it's not such a great thing for most of you it's worthwhile finally she mentioned she had a uh, self-employment tax issue and i think we just covered one angle on on how to reduce that it sounds to me like she's running it through schedule c of her personal return we might start thinking about running it through an s corporation if the numbers are large enough. Mm -hmm. So there's a very broad 50,000 foot view of how we do it, the details one could write entire, not just books, (laughs) but really series of books on.
1: So the, 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 the move for somebody who's in that position where they really feel like they're probably missing some things is get your books together, sit down and pay somebody who understands, sounds like a small business in this case, and uh, get, some, get some competent advice that you probably are going to pay for.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. And how do you find competent advice? You know, A lot of it's gut feel. You talk to someone and you get a feeling for them. For example, that the flaw with a lot of accountants is they're not very aggressive. They're extremely conservative. Um, they, they take the approach of show me a case that says I can do it and we'll do it, otherwise we won't lawyers are the opposite in a good way and in a bad way. In a good way, lawyers will tend to be more, show us where it's prohibited. If it's not prohibited, we're going to do it. So there are more possibilities, more gray, more willing to play legally and ethically. Um, But lawyers also tend oftentimes not to be terribly good with numbers, uh, which is where the accountants tend to shine, and they have a better understanding of economics. I always joke that Lawyers will bill you $1,000 to set up an LLC for your $500 asset and not understand why that upsets you.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, so so it's a combination of the two. You follow your gut on you want someone who's reasonably aggressive but not reckless or stupid, (laughs) and and that's a hard thing for a layman to judge.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, She had a quick follow-up question that we can take right before the break. It is uh, apparently... Her account, she she had an accountant do her return. She noticed that there was a mistake on the return after it was filed. She went to the accountant and said, uh, you know, could be a penalty here. And he said, oh, you don't have to worry about that unless you're audited. I've never seen anyone penalized for that. And she says, "I clearly that's a flashing red light that I need a different accountant. But is there any mitigation of my liability because I was doing what the accountant told me to do?
0: No, the courts aren't really friendly about that. Here's where the courts will mitigate liability. You relied on the advice of a competent accountant. And when an accountant tells you it's not a problem unless you're audited, it kind of makes you wonder, and it should make you wonder. The tax court would look at that as a big red flashing light. Mm-hmm. So if you rely on the advice of a competent accountant, and it was 50% or more likely to not succeed, and you gave them all the information you needed. So those are the real three touchstones. Give them all the information they need, they're competent, and it was a gray issue, but the accountant felt with reason that it was 50% likely or more to succeed. Then if it turns out you're wrong, so they say, no, you can't do that, but you meet all those criteria, they don't penalize you. Mm -hmm. In -hmm. this case, when the accountant simply kind of shrugs it off with a general, don't worry about it, that makes me nervous. And especially the part about don't worry about it if you get audited. Again, we're all happy to not be audited. We're happy there are fewer auditors. And we legally and ethically structure things to minimize the chances of an audit. But the law is the law, and it should be followed. So we don't we don't say, do this since you're never going to get caught. Then you know, Heck, you don't need to talk to me. Well, I'll <laughs> ask the client, are you going to get caught? No, I'm not going to get caught. Great. Do whatever you want. You know, that's really not how it works.
1: Mm-hmm. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to attorney and accountant John Heyer about tax issues, which means this is your chance to get maybe not tax advice, because if John doesn't really you know understand all the details of your situation, uh, it's not like he can give you personal advice, but you know, you got something that's been bugging you about tax law or IRAs or how things work, give us a call at 877-772-9658. Or go to our website at askvena.com, fill in the response uh, the question form there, hit the send button, and we will get it here via email. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can always stay in touch with real life real estate on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Real Life Real Estate. Or by joining our email list at askvina.com. Almost every week on our askvina.com site, we have some sort of a special complimentary offer to listeners, uh, ebooks, recordings, things like that. Uh, this week, it is our 27 page ebook, 12 Strategies for Negotiating with Sellers. This will be the last week where that is available. So go to. AskVina.com. Join our list. You will get a weekly email telling you what is coming up on real life real estate so you never miss a show that's important to you and maybe even a special offer of some sort. Again, that is AskVina.com. Talking today to John Heyer, real estate investor slash tax attorney slash accountant. Uh, he's giving us an update on some tax stuff, although if you have something specific you would like to know, you should send us a question by going to askvina.com or by calling us at 877-772-9658. Uh, we have another question here from Dave. Uh, he says... I have a private lending business that allows a an individual 401k contribution that I take every year. What school of thought do you subscribe to in terms of the best choice between a Roth or regular solo 401k plan? Now, John, this is b- before you directly answer Dave's question, uh, the Roth 401k k's that are available to small businesses are another thing that a lot of people just don't know that much about so maybe we ought to talk a little bit about what that is and then you can tell Dave which sites typically fall on in terms of roth or traditional
0: all right well Roths let's remember in an IRA context a traditional normal IRA you put money in you get a deduction for the money and when the money comes out later on it grows tax-free inside and then when it comes out you pay tax a Roth flips it around you don't get a deduction when you put the money in it still grows tax-free but when it comes out it comes out tax-free now for the vast majority of people uh, if you you run a net present value getting the money tax-free down the road is worth way more than the deduction on a much smaller number up front with a caveat that Congress not double-cross us I frankly think they're going to I think that the Congress does not understand how much money they're losing through Roth type devices And that things like Mitt Romney and how he used his SEP and others using their Roth in a similar way are starting to come to light. We're seeing this in the Wall Street Journal. What does this mean? It's a really good thing. Congress is starting to realize it's a really good thing. What does Congress do when it sees a really good thing? And, of course, immediately bans it. Nobody can have any fun. Um, I think it's down the road some. I do think eventually they're going to phase out Roths. Typically when they phase out or ban something, they give you a grandfather period, meaning all right, whatever your Roth balance was on February 13, 2022, or whenever they get around to it, that balance will come out tax-free. Anything beyond that cannot come out tax-free. It's going to be treated as traditional. That's what they normally do. They don't have to. But if they go retroactive and say, well, we're just kidding about the Roth thing. You have to pay taxes on it. People would be very upset, including a lot of people in power who tend to be able to take care of themselves. So my prediction is, When Congress discovers just how sweet Roths are, when they truly understand it, and I think they're starting to, and with the pressure they have on the budget to fund all these things that they've promised and can't deliver, that is going to at some point result in the demise of Roths. But I I think the higher odds are it will be grandfathered. So the object is build as much as you can in a Roth or a Roth-like investment now before it goes away. So the answer is, what kind of 401k would I prefer? And in particular, he's talking about a solo 401k. Because if you have a business where you have no other employees, it's just you and perhaps your spouse, no other employees, you can get a special simplified 401k. And I really like 401ks when compared to IRAs. Um, To make a very, very long story short, they have better asset protection based on federal law. You can put more money in them. You can leverage the way I described with IRAs, and at certain instances, pay no tax if you do it right. Because remember I mentioned an IRA, when you leverage, you do pay some tax. Um, They're more forgiving. There's this thing called prohibited transactions that if there's a teeny, teeny, tiny little one in your IRA, it destroys the whole IRA. In a 401k, it doesn't do so. So there are are a lot of things, and that's just a partial and quick list. I really like 401ks more than IRAs, and I really like Roths over traditionals. So the the four hundred and one k Roth for me it's like the Reese's peanut butter cup of tax planning peanut butter chocolate they meet and it's just wonderful deliciousness.
1: <laughs> wow! Now you've you've made me hungry and confused about how peanut butter and IRAs go together, but. Um... Good, good analogy, one way or another. Uh, question here from Matty. She wants to know, under what conditions are all or a portion of a real estate boot camp seminar, coaching, blah, 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 tax deductible?
0: Okay, they're, they're tax deductible if and when you have a trader business. And put that in quotes. Do the little air quotes, trader business. It's a term of art. It is not specifically defined. It means that you're, you know, if you're a flipper. You're actually buying things and selling things is what it basically means you can write off those kinds of seminars when you are in that business now if you're not in that business you're learning how to become one of those people and so you're paying for this excellent education it doesn't mean you can't write it off it just changes when and how you write it off so if somebody were to hypothetically find a a local teacher who's really really good in Cincinnati and charges very good prices for real-world advice and pay this person to learn and then actually start the business. Once the business starts, you add up all those costs of all those seminars and books and the travel and everything, and you take it as a startup deduction. Depending on, on the year of, that you're doing this, you can deduct five to ten thousand up front. The rest of it you take the deduction spread out over time, aka depreciation. Mm-hmm. But you can write off the seminar if it relates to an existing trader business. And you can eventually write it off if you start a trader business that it eventually relates to, but you can't write it off until you do that.
1: Very good. Uh any other questions come to eight seven 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 eight seven seven so many sevens. Eight seven 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 two nine six five eight. You can also go to askvina.com and send us an email that way. We're going to take a quick break after which we're going to cover tax traps on discounted debt, new information for short sailors that you're going to like and more with John Heyer. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and we're doing our annual tax show this week. It's... uh. You know, one of those topics that we wish we didn't have to think about. It's clearly not as sexy as making money. Not that not that our guest today isn't as sexy as other guests. Don't take it that way. <laughs> but it's something that you know we have to deal with as small business people, and that it seems to get more and more complicated year after year. There's these changes that happen, and if your attorney or accountant is not a a real estate expert, they're not keeping up with the changes. They aren't aware. That these things are happening because there's so many of them and real estate related businesses are, are are really specific. So that's why we got John Heyer from Real Estate Tax Law who deals primarily with clients who are in real estate and small business uh, to do these things. You got one more shot at getting your questions in by going to AskVena.com. Or by calling 877-772-9658. Now, John, at the at the beginning of last year, there was a lot of kind of panic in the in the community of people who do short sales because there was this thing that Congress had passed that was giving their sellers some relief from taxes when they had to do a short sale and it was set to expire. And it seems like maybe we've, we've got that back. Can you, can you explain what the deduction is and what happened there?
0: All right. When somebody lends you money, let's just have a little fun. I lend you $10,000 because I'm just that kind of guy. And you pay me 1000 and then I say, you know, you don't have to pay me the other 9 let us just call it quit. Let's go have dinner. And so what happens is you now have $9,000 of income because when it's a loan, it's not income. You have to pay it back. As soon as you don't have to pay it back, It becomes income. So where we see this a lot are foreclosures, short sales, deed in lieu. Uh, Somebody has a property, they borrowed on it. The bank cuts the amount of debt that's owed, just like I did with you, and now you owe taxes on it. But there are a lot of perfectly legal and ethical ways to get around it. Unfortunately, the law, as you mentioned, tax law is so vast, nobody knows everything about it. If you ask me about nonprofits, I run screaming and refer you to somebody. We all are good at our little niche. In real estate, knowing what investors are up against, we've done a lot of work on how to avoid what we call cancellation of debt or COD income. So when when a normal homeowner loses their house to foreclosure, a lot of the times they're not willing to do a short sale because of the tax consequences. Now, they don't understand that if they lose the house to foreclosure, which is usually the other option, they're in the same boat. So A, it doesn't change anything. B, Congress had passed a law that made it a lot easier for those homeowners to not pay taxes on this forgiveness of debt, this cancellation of debt, income. That doesn't mean, first of all, without that law, that they wouldn't be able to avoid the tax. It's just most CPAs didn't understand it. They made the law easier. Every year, we go through this thing with the so-called extenders. Um, That's a big one. And the Section 179 deduction, where you can depreciate something all in one year. You buy a computer, and instead of writing it off a little bit at a time over five years, you write it off all at once every year because of the budget these things are temporary in the budget in in the law what the law says is you can exclude this cancellation of debt income you can write off this computer until the end of this year and then every year we run into the issue of are they going to renew it and they do it at the last minute that you can never count on it and by the way the reason they do that's budgetary they're playing budget games and since those numbers are not officially in the budget during the year they can pretend that that doesn't exist in the budget so it's just sort of washington-based fantasy Um, And and everybody does it. It's totally bipartisan. So at the end of the year, they did renew for at least 2014, so it was good until December 31st. Any short sales done by homeowners, they're not going to pay cancellation of debt income on. And without getting into the gory details, we can do some really fun things when investors have short sales or foreclosures. I don't wish it on anybody, but if it does happen, we're often able to actually get you a big loss for tax purposes, at the end of the day it just depends on the numbers and the facts
1: Mm -hmm. so that was extended through the end of 2014 and will it happen again in 2015 do we think
0: you know every year it has happened and that's politically a very popular provision so if if anything gets extended i'll bet you that and the super depreciation the section 179 i'd be pretty surprised if they didn't get extended now of course now that i said that i've probably jinxed the ball (laughs) and we're doomed and it won't get extended (laughs)
1: Well, oh, thanks, John. Yeah, so, so yeah, I'm there for you. One 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 of the things that we always tell real estate entrepreneurs is when you are dealing with a civilian, such as a seller in foreclosure, never give them tax advice, even if you even if you think you know that you know that they aren't not going to have to pay taxes on this short sale because of something Congress did. You never tell them that. You say, "I think that this is the case. Go check with your." accountant right and and this is one of the reasons because we may tell them wrong (laughs) if it doesn't get extended through 2015 uh you may have just given a seller a piece of advice they really really wanted to hear done the deal as a result and then boom it doesn't exist anymore
0: yep that's our that's our tax world constantly shifting (laughs) sands.
1: let's talk about um Defaulted notes as an investment—that has—they're just blown up in like the last five years. There's there's all this defaulted debt floating around, and and there's all these gurus going around telling people how to buy these things at pennies on the dollar and then work them out with folks. And what we're not hearing a lot about is the, the there is a huge potential tax trap there. And because it has been such a popular strategy, and because we have talked about it here a few times on Real Life Real Estate, let's talk about what that thing might be.
0: Okay. Um, And given that we're running out of time, I will go fast. So I apologize for the machine gun fire talk. When you buy a note at a discount, A, we're seeing a lot of people do really well with it. Um, There's a lot of opportunity out there. There are a lot of people buying notes cheap and either rehabbing the note. So they buy a note, let's say it's a the balance is $80,000, they buy it for $10,000, and then they go to the homeowner and say, look, if you're willing to get back on board and start making payments at a $60,000 note with much lower payments and interest rates, uh, we're willing to reinstate the note and not foreclose on you. So it's good for everybody. It's also a way of getting the property. Sometimes they say, if you give us the keys uh, and walk away, we'll just forget about this debt, and they get a nice house for ten grand. There are tax consequences to that. The two big ones are... The discount, which in my example, let's remember it was, uh, hopefully I'm using the same numbers, uh, $80,000 face value or, or the amount owed on the note, 10000 purchase price, the $70,000 difference is a discount. Eventually, over time, that converts to interest. So that's rule number one. The discount becomes interest over time. Now, how fast it becomes interest, there are a lot of rules in that regard, and there's some planning to be done. Even more, this is the chilling part, this is scary. What the IRS says is, if you bought for ten, it had the face value of eighty, and you, you negotiated a reinstatement at sixty. The IRS says you have an immediate income of fifty thousand dollars. The sixty reinstatement minus the ten thousand you paid is an immediate income, even though you didn't get a nickel in cash.
1: That is frightening. People need to
0: be aware of that. There, now there are some ways to take a little bit of the bite off of that. There are some some sophisticated arguments in terms of how the statute's written. And instead of taking a bath between sixty thousand minus ten, maybe the right number is thirty minus ten. But you still take a, a bath. We call it phantom income, and it's awful. One solution, by the way, is to do those in your IRA, where there's no gain to be paid.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and we actually have two minutes left, so I'm going to try and knock down these questions that just came in from AskVina.com. Uh, Anna would like to know if you sell a house on land contract, and then the buyer moves out and the land contract is released, what's the tax consequences to you?
0: That's complex. I'd need to see the numbers. There's the potential for what I just described, phantom gain. The IRS basically says you traded off a debt and you got a house. And if they think the house is worth more than the debt, even though it was your house to begin with, they say you might have gain. So we'd have to look at that ahead of time, preferably before the uh, the taking back of the debt occurs, to see if we can do anything with it.
1: Mm-hmm. And a question from Norman, who says, how do you see the pros and cons of the declaration of real estate professional?
0: There's only There are only pros to it. There are no cons. A common um, misconception is, is that when you are a real estate professional, for Code Section 469C7, you pay Social Security tax and you're a dealer. That's not true. They have nothing to do with each other. What a real estate professional means is that you're allowed to take the losses from your rental properties if you have losses and use it to offset other income, which most people aren't allowed to do. Now, there are strict, and I do mean strict, record-keeping requirements that if you want to do that, you have to comply with. But if you qualify, it's all upside, very little downside. Again, we'd have to look at the return to see there are some oddball cases where there is some downside. But by and large, if you're qualified and you think you're going to stay qualified, you want to do it.
1: Okay. So no downsides, Norm. Check the box if you, in fact, you know, qualify, because there are some actual qualifications there that you have to deal with. You can't just declare yourself a real estate professional. So, um, gosh, we have a couple more questions here, John, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to forward them to you because uh, I think these folks deserve an answer, but we do not have time to uh, deal with them. So uh, these these other two folks, uh, you can expect an email answer via me from John about the, these fairly simple questions. It's just that we, <laughs> we've run out of time. So appreciate your time today, John. As always, uh, interesting stuff, informative. Wish we didn't have to deal with it, but, you know, it is what it is, death and taxes. So uh, thank you for being with us today, and we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.